So are you ready? It's been a long time since we've looked at this book on a Sunday morning here at Calvary. The last time I approached this book was on a Wednesday evening back in 2013. And I think that after all the questions last year about the book of Revelation, it's time to do it again. The last time we did it on Sunday morning was in 2003. A lot has changed since 2003. But I want to begin by stating from the beginning that this is a study of the book of Revelation. Meaning that we are going to be taking the book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we are going to be looking at it through the lens in which John intended us to look at it. Because of this symbolic and sign nature of the book of Revelation, there is much subjective interpretation associated with the book of Revelation. Now, before we begin, I think it's also important for us to know how we will be approaching this book. There are four major uh, rules of interpretation used for the book of Revelation, or rules of what is known as hermeneutics when it comes to the book of Revelation. And the first of those is known as symbolic or allegorical. And it is in this type of interpretation that much of conjecture, speculation, and subjection is entered into the discussion of the book of Revelation. There is also known as a historical view of Revelation. This surfaced during the medieval times. And it sees the book of Revelation symbolically charting out for us the entire existence of the church history. There is also a third interpretation known as the preterist view, which believes that the book of Revelation simply outlines the beginning of the church, how the church began after, the, of course, the Spirit descended upon the apostles and to the ending of John, who was the last of the apostles, to die. In all three of those, there are major problems, but because of our time together, we will not be approaching the book in any of those three methods. And the reason being is that I believe that the methodology in which we adopt here at Calvary Chapel best suits the manner of interpretation for the book of Revelation. It is called the futurist view, meaning that we believe that the events of Revelation, specifically Revelation chapters 4 through 22, are still yet to be fulfilled. So we will be approaching the book through that lens, believing that Revelation, the majority of it, is still prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And if you thought that was fun, just wait till we get to the millennial discussion. Post-millennial, amillennial, pre-millennial. We would be considered pre-tribulation, pre-millennialist, futurist here at Calvary Chapel. And if that's not a mouthful, I don't know what is. But we believe that the rapture of the church will occur prior to the seven-year tribulation period. We believe then the world will be plunged into a seven-year period of tribulation, which at the end of Jesus Christ will physically return to this earth. After his physical return to this earth, he will establish his millennial kingdom. This is why we call ourselves pre-millennial. And we believe that Revelation chapter 20 is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ here on this earth. And then after that 1,000-year physical reign of Jesus Christ on the church, uh, on the world, in the earth, uh, we then go into the new heavens and the new earth. So that's pretty much the book of Revelation. I'm glad you enjoyed our study. Through it together this morning, let's pray. Well, we have just begun. But I think it would be appropriate to pray before we begin, don't you? Father, we ask that your Spirit would open up our eyes and our heart to this book. Father, we pray that you would help us to see and understand the events that are still yet to take place within it. 
Father, the specific unfolding of these events, we don't necessarily know how they will unfold, but we know that they will unfold. Help us to understand those things that we can apply now. Help us and encourage us to understand those things that we are to be aware of. And help us to understand those things that would encourage us to continue to walk in you, with you in during days of trial, trouble, and tribulation. Father, we thank you for this book, and we ask now that your Spirit would lead us through it. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, chapter 1. Let us begin. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. What would you say to me if I began by saying to you that Revelation is actually a book of blessings? Would that confuse you? Would you say to yourself, well, I've read through it and I just don't actually see that? There are seven times found in the book of Revelation that would be considered Beatitudes, blessings from reading this book, hearing and understanding it and applying those things that we are required to apply in our lives today. Revelation is truly, for the believer in Jesus Christ, a book of blessings, which is the title of my message today. I heard a story of some students in a seminary who would often, you know, uh, sit at the local coffee shop and discussing various theological ideas, sometimes passionately debating those ideas. And as they were, the gentleman who worked there and owned the cafe, a gentleman named Sam, would listen to their debates and their passionate exchanges, specifically about the end times. And finally, the young men asked Sam his opinion. Now, Sam was just a simple Christian who loved the Lord. And when they asked him what his opinion was concerning the return of Jesus Christ, the interpretation of the book of Revelation, he simply began by smiling uh, promptly and just said, well, to me, here's what it says. In the end, Jesus wins. And I think that is truly the essence of this book. Now, I'm going to tell you, being a pastor for almost 30 years now and teaching as much as I have, I don't know if there's a book more misunderstood than the book of Revelation. I don't know how many bad YouTube videos have been based on the book of Revelation. I cease to be able to count them any longer. But as we study this together, let's first and foremost understand that this is a book of blessing for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in John's initial greeting and introduction of himself that we just read, there's some principles that I want to adopt before we even enter this book. First and foremost, notice with me in verse 1, the name of the book is Revelation, not Revelations, okay? So if you ask me a question based on the book of Revelations, you have to tithe double that week, okay? It's Revelation, and here's why. The word revelation means unveiling. It means to make manifest, to reveal. And it's singular because it has to do with a singular event. And that is the physical return of Jesus Christ. As Titus was written to by Paul, our blessed hope, the return of Christ. It's revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
which leads us to our second principle. The book of Revelation is not about the Antichrist, it's about Jesus Christ, okay? If you are hoping that we are going to give you the identity of the Antichrist as we go through the book of Revelation, may I just inform you right here and now, I'm going to disappoint If you think that we are going to find the exact day or the hour of Jesus Christ's return, I'm going to disappoint because the book does not offer those things to us. But what the book does offer is the assurance that our Lord and Savior is going to return for us. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. So as we begin, we find that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants things which must shortly take place. That phrase has caused some to believe that the events that are recorded in Revelation were near to those early recipients of the letter. But the Greek word can be better understood as that once these events take place, they will happen quickly. They will, un- they will fall like dominoes. You know, one will fall and then a series of events will take place very quickly. But John also, based on his earlier epistles clearly demonstrates to us that the early church anticipated the return of Jesus Christ in their day. And because of that, they lived with an urgency that I frankly don't see much of in the church today. In fact, the attitude has really changed concerning eschatology, the study of the last days. In the 1980s, eschatology was a key component of almost all church worship services and teachings. The book of Revelation was addressed, uh, you know, every so often to remind people of the return of Jesus Christ. But today, many Christians have adopted the attitude found in Peter, 2 Peter specifically, where he states, you know, it's been like it has been for the last 2,000 years. Nothing's changed You keep telling me that the Lord is coming back, but realize, I mean, it's the same as it was before in life. Well, I can say this to them, that yes, since it has been 2,000 years since the Bible, the New Testament was given to us, we can say for certainty that we're 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before. And never in world history have we seen Biblical events align like we see them aligning today. So I do believe that there's a renewed urgency, that there's a new, a renewed uh, need for the understanding of the signs of the times in which we live, leading us, as John wrote earlier in his epistles, number one, to get our hearts right before the Lord, and number two, to be urgent about getting the gospel out into all the world. So the revelation given to Jesus Christ was then passed on to his servant John by an angel. It is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and now the book of Revelation. John, in his first Gospel, it was his desire that people would believe. In his Epistles, it was his desire that people be sure, and we'll look at that more in a minute. But in the book of Revelation, he is emphasizing the need to be ready, to be ready for the Lord's return. As the book begins very clearly, as this revelation is given to John, the last of the apostles at this time, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw, blessed is he. That is, this is the first of the seven blessings found in Revelation. Blessed is he who reads those and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, 
for the time is near. The book of Daniel is the Old Testament book of eschatology. But the revelation given in the book of Daniel, Daniel was instructed by God to seal it, for the time was not yet right. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, which you see it on the screen behind me, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. But John, when after given this revelation, he was instructed in Revelation 22.10, and here at the beginning, to make it known. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So God wants us to know and to understand the revelation that he is giving concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ to his servant, John. As one wrote, he said, John's prophecy is primarily the revelation of Jesus Christ, not simply the revelation of future events. You must not divorce the person from the prophecy For without the person, there could be no fulfillment of prophecy. John was an interesting individual. He was certainly the apostle in whom Jesus loved. And he had a real heart for the church. History tells us that the time is now 95 A.D. Flavius... Domitian is Caesar in Rome, and he is now beginning to seriously persecute the church. The Christian church is thriving, it is moving, it is on fire, and it is beginning to storm the world. But yet, because of Christians' refusal to acknowledge the Caesar of Rome as deity, the Caesar began and this is just one of many Caesars, began to persecute the church for their unwillingness to bow their knee to Caesar. And John was one of those. And through the life of John, it was always his hope that people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But not only that, but that they would then grow in maturity in Christ. When he wrote the Gospel of John, he told us exactly why he was writing what he was writing. Notice with me in John 20, 31. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have faith, I'm sorry, life in his name. When he wrote his first epistle, 1 John, now many wonder why he wrote that epistle. I believe it was an explanation. He was expounding upon John 15, which caused uh, confusion in the early church. So he wrote 1 John to explain John 15. So when you read 1 John, read John 15, and you get the understanding of why he's saying what he's saying in light of the pressure that Gnosticism was putting on the early church. But in 1 John, notice what he says. In the first one, it was to believe. The second one was to be sure. In 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. But when it came to Revelation, it was really intended by John to stir people's hearts to be ready. So in Revelation 22.20, He writes, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. John is writing from an island. He has been exiled to an island called Patmos. The reason for his his, uh, being exiled was due to the fact that he himself was flourishing with the church in Ephesus. And the church was on fire, and they were encouraging individuals to remain loyal and allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. And because of this, John was arrested. 
Now, historians tell us that they tried to execute John by boiling him in oil. But the problem was, is that God wasn't finished with John, so he didn't boil, the historians tell us. He just sat there and asked for a scrub brush, his rubber ducky, and some soap. His skin was glowing and refreshed afterwards. No, I'm kidding. It was a spa day for John. I'm really kidding now. But he wouldn't die. They didn't know what to do with him. So they believed that they could send him to the island of Patmos, there in the Adrian Sea, uh, and just off the coast of Asia Minor, and he would be exiled, out of sight, out of mind. He wouldn't be any trouble. He wouldn't be stirring people up and encouraging them to only show their allegiance to Christ. He'd be, you know, done, done away with. Well, on that island, we're going to discover that on the Lord's Day, which most likely refers to the first day of the week, Sunday, he was at church in his cell, just in the Spirit, thinking and considering on the Lord, and the Lord gave him the book of Revelation, the letter to seven churches. Now, what's interesting to me is that they believed that John wasn't going to be any bother to them by exiling him to that island, and he gave the church one of the greatest letters the church could ever receive. Isn't that so God? You know, I am more convinced now than ever that when, our, when we're up against it in this world, and we begin to worry and become anxiety-ridden because of circumstances that appear overwhelming to us, may I encourage you at that time to take a step back, pray, and let's wait on God to see what God is going to do. Because God may have a plan that you are unaware of. What you see as a hopeless situation, I'll tell you this, God never sees it as a hopeless situation. So the book of Revelation was meant to encourage them as it is meant to encourage us today. In fact, the early writers, Clement of Alexandria, Victorious, Origen, Jerome, Icubus, they all wrote concerning John's banishment to the island of Patmos and the revelation in which he was given by God to the church. So as we read this together, let's continue in verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Okay, so John is writing specifically to seven churches that existed at that time, which are found in chapters 2 and 3. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over all the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests. To his God and Father, to, whom, uh, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Interesting way that John begins this letter. In a typical greeting or a doxology, a, 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 uh, a salutation to the individuals in whom they are, he is writing to, he begins from the very beginning to point to paint God in a certain light and in a certain way. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, there are some things that you need to know about its structure and about its content. When it comes to its content, because there is so much symbolism and signs within it, some have become concerned that we certainly don't know and can't understand or know for sure what these things mean. Well, historians tell us that Revelation was written in the way that it was because John was writing to churches that were being persecuted by the Romans, and there was a strategy, some hold to, that John did not want the Roman soldiers to be able to understand what was in the contents of the letter of Revelation. 
These symbols some find as a vulnerability to the letter, but others sees it as a strength because symbols will not weaken over time. Now, that's a huge statement, and it has to be clarified, because symbols can weaken over time. Then why are the commentators and scholars writing in this way concerning the symbols and signs given in the book of Revelation? Because the book of Revelation is unique, because it is the last letter of a codex of what we know as the Bible, scriptures, The symbols that are given in the book of Revelation are not individualized and given to us alone. We also have within the Bible a key to understanding the meaning of those symbols. Okay, now let's stop for a minute because I just threw a lot at you. What am I talking about? Well, can I ask, does anybody remember when maps used to be paper? You know, today we all rely on GPS to get us to so many places. How many of you have been led astray by GPS? It is a tool of the Antichrist. I'm I'm convinced of that. But when you read a paper map, there were symbols on that map, weren't there? Bridges and embankments and so forth and types of streets and mileage, etc. Every map had on it a key. And that key was a definition to each one of the symbols found on that map. Do we all remember that? Okay. The same is true with the book of Revelations. The symbols are not abandoned that are found in Revelation The symbols have a key, and the key to those symbols is the Old Testament. Is the Old Testament. John drew from Old Testament imagery to encourage the church at the time, but also somewhat keep it hidden from the Roman soldiers, allowing the letter to be furthered. They would read it and say, oh, this is just garbly gook. That's a technical term we use. And they would just allow the letter to be passed on instead of being confiscated and burned with the other parchments that they would have at that time that would encourage Christian doctrine. They thought it was silly. In fact, when it came to the canonization of the Scripture, Revelation was one of the last books because of the apocalyptic nature. Now, that's a big word. Apocalyptic to us today in America, we think of scenes of, you know, something after a nuclear holocaust and just complete Armageddon and so forth. But apocalyptic in that time meant unveiling. It meant something to be revealed. And it didn't carry all of the negative overtones with the word that we associate with the word today. So John uses it in this way. He's writing to seven churches. And he begins from the very beginning to show God in a very specific light. In fact, if you are an overachiever, you will find 300 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And I want you to have found them all by next week or you can't come in. Okay? So we have a key to the symbolism found in the book of Revelation. We're not alone. We're not abandoned. We have Uh, the tools needed to understand what John was trying to communicate. I hope that encourages you. But these images were also meant to stir emotion. You will find that as we go through this book, we should allow emotion to be stirred by it. I don't read the book of Revelation the same way that I did 30 years ago, 35 years ago when I got saved. Because I see the intentions that God had within it for the salvation of those who would receive the gospel. Now, because of the symbolic and signs contained in the book of Revelation, much speculation, conjecture, has been associated with this book, leading to all kinds of conclusions which are simple eisegesis, reading into the text what we want them to say. Throughout the church in history in my life, in the last 30, 40 years, Many books have been written why the rapture is going to happen in this year and the Antichrist is, in, is this person and that person and so forth. 
and all of those books are now found at half-price books and other places, completely irrelevant, and they've done more damage than they've done good. The book of Revelation is the inspired Word of God. We should look at it as it is intended to be looked at in and through the lens that which John wrote it to the original recipients in 95 A.D. Now, that being said, though it had application there, John was also inadvertently painting a much larger picture for the arrival of the one that we know is the Antichrist and detailing the seven years of tribulation that will come upon this earth after his arrival. So he says here, he begins with God the Father, he who is and who was and who is to come. Think of Daniel 7 when you read this. Then he says something that has concerned and confused many. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What in the world is he talking about? What are these seven spirits that he is talking about? I believe that he is referring to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where the Spirit of God is given seven clear definitions, seven clear attributes. In Isaiah 11.2, the Spirit of the Lord, number one. Notice when it says Spirit of and then the description afterwards. The Spirit of God is the Lord Himself. The third person of the Trinity, number one. And rest upon Him, that is Jesus Christ. The Spirit of, number two, wisdom. The Spirit of, number uh, number three, understanding. The Spirit of counsel, four. The Spirit of Might, 5, the Spirit of Knowledge, 6, and the Spirit of the Fear of the Lord. The Jewish understanding of the Spirit was was certainly more defined by Old Testament writing than New Testament. The New Testament was still being compiled, wasn't it, during the time of John. The church was greatly separated. The church was in hiding. The church was, you know, in various places around the known world. Letters were traveling sometimes at snail speed, getting from one church to the other. They did not have the luxury of the completed New Testament as we do today, where we derive much of our theological understanding of God from, of course, being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So when John refers to the Holy Spirit, he undoubtedly will use Old Testament Scripture to identify the Holy Spirit. And the Greek here is a little confusing, rightly translated seven spirits, but there are some who make the argument that it's seven characteristics of the spirit, which again would coincide perfectly, perfectly, Isaiah 11.2. So the Trinity is how he begins. Jesus Christ is introduced as the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, that's his resurrection, and the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Think of, again, the prophecies of Isaiah, the numerous times telling us that the government shall be upon his shoulders. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, he has made us kings and priests, meaning through his mediation we can go directly to God through Christ. That's what he's saying. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, it's with the clouds, not in the clouds. So giving us an understanding that clouds have identity maybe more than just simple clouds in the sky. And I believe it's the cloud of witnesses that we find in Hebrews, meaning he comes with the saints as he returns. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, which is a direct reference to Zechariah, which we'll see in just a moment. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, but even so, notice the same type of language, amen. Jesus Christ... Remember when he came the first time, 
Remember the famous verse of John's gospel, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How many then can quote John 3.17? The next verse. For I have not come into this world to condemn the world, but to save it. To save it. Illustrating that point by riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey signifying to that generation that he was coming to those people in humility and in peace, meaning he desires a relationship with him. If a king from another nation approached a city, approached a city, especially a city that was, um, sub, you know, uh, less of, of a military threat, meaning the the one coming in on the back of the donkey was more powerful militarily. If that king came in on a donkey, it would indicate to those people that he comes in peace and he's looking for a relationship with that city. But if that same king of the stronger military power came to a weaker nation on the back of a white horse, it meant that he came in war. And of course, Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus Christ comes on the back of a white horse for the purpose of war. The book of Revelation is Jesus' second coming to save his people and to judge the world of their sin. To redeem and to take possession of his redeemed possession that he fulfilled in his first coming by his death and crucifixion and resurrection from the grave. So John is painting him in a much different light. Compare this to the first chapter of John's gospel and you will see that it is really different. And we're going to see that this difference is expounded upon as we continue. For in verse 8 he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. He who is, who was, And who is to come, perfectly identifying himself with God the Father, they are one in the same. When he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, he's talking about the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Now, it's it's more than just the understanding that Jesus is the beginning and Jesus is the end of all things. That's true. But one individual wrote a theological journal article that I felt was fascinating because, again, knowing that John wrote this, here's a little deeper nugget for you, knowing that John wrote this and identified Jesus as the Logos in John chapter 1 gives us the understanding that the Alpha and the Omega that he's using here is a reference back to the Logos in John chapter 1. You may say, how? What does that mean? Well, the logos means word, right? It means the word. Now, what are words constructed of? Letters. All right, we are awake. At least she is. Letters. How many letters are there in the English alphabet? 26. How many letters are every word in the English dictionary constructed of? 26. We have 26 letters to work with, so every word in the English dictionary in some combination and some order and some frequency has to be constructed on the basis of those 26 letters, correct? So Jesus being the word in John chapter 1, The word logos was used in the Greek time in philosophical circles as the communication of all knowledge, wisdom, and philosophy. Okay, here's where we go a little deeper. We're diving into the deep end of the pool and hopefully you have your floaties. What John is saying is that Jesus Christ was was the embodiment of all wisdom all knowledge, all philosophical reasoning. Jesus Christ was everything. 
He calls him the Alpha and the Omega because all aspects of knowledge created in the Greek language were created with the letters between the Alpha and the Omega, which constitutes uh, every word that would be used to communicate knowledge at that time. John is saying that Jesus Christ is the all in all. He's everything. Whatever wisdom, whatever knowledge you may think you have. And of course, the Greeks prided themselves on knowledge, didn't they? Jesus Christ was superior in every single way. Because we are not dealing with the wisdom and the knowledge of man. We are dealing with the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's everything. He's the totality of everything. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, was everything. And that's, I believe, what John is communicating through these terms, that Jesus Christ was the totality of everything. In verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation, notice with me, And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why am I here? I'm being persecuted for my faith. I'm being here for testifying on behalf of Jesus and for furthering the word of God. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. As John was in his prison, in exile, on the island of Patmos, he still took the first day of the week to meet with the Lord. And even though he didn't have a Bible in his lap or in his hands, he just spent time meditating and considering the Word of God. And as he was there in the Spirit, meaning that he was conscientious and aware of the Spirit's presence there, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit had a unique presence in the, in the New Testament. He was with them in a powerful way. As pastoring now for 25 years, I haven't seen anyone struck down like Ananias and Sapphira for not tithing properly though we may have to resort to that in the future if inflation continues to go higher. I'm kidding, of course. But that being said, he is given the sound of a trumpet, a voice speaking to him. And this voice begins to reveal to John the revelation that is contained in the following chapters of the book. Now, understanding the first chapter will help you understand and interpret the rest of the letter. Now, before we go any farther, he again says in verse 11, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Jesus clearly is stating to John who the recipients of this letter is for. Then he goes on, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstand, one like the Son of Man. This is a clear correlation to Daniel's uh, letter in the Old Testament where the Son of Man, that phrase is coined. And of course, Jesus appropriated that phrase to identify Him with Messiah throughout the Gospels clothed with the garments down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool. Sound like Daniel 7 to you? As white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sounds of many waters. All of the symbols used to describe Jesus Christ are found later in the book of Revelation also. To each of the seven churches, one of these characteristics is given concerning to the one who's writing the letter to them. We'll look at that in more detail when we get there. At the end in Revelation chapter 19, we find that each one of these is again used to describe the return of Jesus Christ and to depict him to us in a very certain way. Each one of these uh, descriptive symbols is found in the Old Testament and they have one commonality associated with them all, and that is the aspect of judgment. Jesus Christ is being depicted from the very beginning as Him returning for the purpose of judgment of this world. Now, let's remember we're in 95 AD, and again, 60-some years earlier, Jesus Christ was crucified and on the third day rose again. The Bible tells us that 500 people saw Him after His resurrection. One commentator said very interestingly, that the last time most saw him in Jerusalem, who many were still alive at 95 AD, saw him on the cross. And their interpretation of him hanging from the cross was defeat, hopelessness, that he had been subdued by his creation. John is now clearly depicting the risen Jesus Christ returning in all glory, honor, and majesty for the purpose of judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, the Pharisees were greatly confused by the two varying descriptions of the coming of the Messiah. In certain aspects of the Old Testament, he was seen as a humble servant coming to his people. But in other aspects of Isaiah, he's seen as a conquering hero coming to his people. So which one is it? Some believed that he was going to do both in his first coming. And you see this throughout the Gospels, don't you? He comes in humility in a barn in Bethlehem. And then throughout the course of his life, you get the idea that they see him as Messiah for the sole purpose of delivering them from the Roman oppression. That's indicated to us because we continuously hear them say, when are you going to establish your kingdom? Oh Lord, when you do establish your kingdom, remember us. Some of the disciples even had their mom come and lobby for them before Jesus, saying, when you establish your kingdom, can my sons sit on your right hand and on your left? Even at the beginning of the book of Acts, that he is asked, Lord, now will you establish your kingdom? Those were those who believed he would come in humility and end in glorious reign. But when that didn't happen, then some began to formulate the idea that there would be two messiahs, one coming in humility and the other one coming in glory. What they apparently didn't anticipate is Jesus coming twice, the first time in humility and the second time in glory. So John establishes through the symbolism used to describe Jesus Christ that he is not a helpless victim of the crucifixion. He's the risen Christ in glory now coming and returning for the purpose of judgment. That was a great place to say amen. I think we lost you already. So I will, you, I will show you what each one of these... You know, there's always one in the audience. Yeah, I will show you what each one of these means as we go through the seven churches together. But for our conversation today, I just wanted to share with you why John is using such a description of him. And in verse 16, the symbolism continues. He had in his right hand seven stars. I wonder what that's about. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That's interesting. And his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. You don't see the crucified Christ hanging from a cross anymore, do you? Not at all. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Notice this. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. 
for I am the first and the last. This is the same John who rested his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. The same Jesus is now before him, and all he can do in response to what he sees is to fall down dead. Our God is not dead, he's alive. Our God is not a victim, he's a victor. Our God has won and is going to demonstrate that in his second coming. And as he encourages John, so should I encourage you this morning that the same hand that touched John is with you today. Though he is this king and he's going to come in judgment, he is still our loving Savior who loved us and loves us today. Notice that he explains to John in verse 18 when he says, I am he who lives. I'm not dead. And was dead. Yeah, I did die. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Death, the final enemy, has been conquered. And Hades will be emptied. And those who are His shall enter into His glory for all eternity. Write the things which you have seen, these things which, you, which are, and the things which will take place after this. Verse 19 is the outline for the book. Jesus gives us the outline. Did you ever have a literature class and the teacher assigns you a, a letter or a book and says, all right, now I want you to learn how to outline it? Well, we don't even have to try. God's already given it to us. Those things that were are written in chapter 1. Those things that are are, rap, are written in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place next are written in chapters 4 to 22. There's your outline of the book. It's given to us from the very, very beginning. And in verse 20, he gives us the understanding. For the mystery of the stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now the word angels there in the Greek is messenger, and some debate if, it is, if he is writing to the pastors of these seven churches or if there are literally seven angels over those churches. I believe the latter. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Interesting description. The church in the world is meant to be a lamp, a light unto the world. And Jesus has a message for these seven churches. And as we go through the seven churches of Revelation, which I believe are some of the most crucial points of the entire letter for us today, as we look at them together, there's much that we can learn from them together. But as we finish the first chapter, we find the absolute um, beginning of the entire book for the entire book. Notice with me when we talk about judgment that God told us that judgment must begin in the house of God first. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, should be on the screen behind you. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous... One is scarcely saved. Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? You and I today must understand that we are living possibly in the pause before the storm, the calm before the storm. If we are going to understand Revelation properly, we must take a step back and look at our own lives. We must ask ourselves the same question that David asked and say, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. We need to challenge ourselves to discover if we have become apathetic, complacent, carnal. 
If we've risen ourselves to that place of preeminence in our heart, or do we allow Christ to reign there? We must ask ourselves, do we still care about the fallen world around us? Or have we adapted an, uh, an attitude towards them of, well, literally, to hell with them? We need to search our own hearts before diving into the book of Revelation together. We need to ask ourselves some serious questions about our own walks with the Lord. And may I encourage you, today is the day that you can get right with God. That you can go before the Lord and see if things have gotten you know, off track within your heart. Are you more concerned about the temporal comforts of this world or the eternal glory that is to follow? These are questions that only you can answer before the Lord. It's not my place to judge or to critique. But I will tell you that in reading the book of Revelation, I cannot help but first and foremost think, Lord, am I right with you? Peter made it clear that this question must be asked of those who would endeavor in this point. Notice with me that when John fell dead before the image of Christ in which he saw, let us remember what Daniel said in Daniel 10, 7 through 9. And he said, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me I, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words and while I heard the sounds of uh, his words, I was deep asleep on my face with my face to the ground. Or let us remember when Isaiah had that moment with the Lord in Isaiah 6, 4 through 5. And the post of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How is it possible that we could approach God in any other manner as we see Him depicted for us in this way in Revelation 1? Just in a place of brokenness and a surrender before Him. Knowing that though He is the righteous judge, He's also our gracious Savior who loves us. As I said from the very beginning, there are seven blessings found in the book and I want to give them to you this morning for you to note and for you to watch for as we go through the book together. That's why I believe the book of Revelation is a book of blessing and the first one is found in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. In Revelation 14, 13, should be on the screen behind me, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. In Revelation 16, 15, again we read, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. In Revelation 19.9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. In Revelation 26, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In Revelation 22.7 Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
And lastly, in 22.14, Blessed are those who do His commandments, for they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. This is why I believe that the book of Revelation is truly a book of blessing for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Are you excited yet? We've just gotten started. Let's pray.